0: Welcome to the first episode of the Vinyl Me Please History of Metal Blade podcast, where we'll be looking at the legacy of one of the most important labels in heavy music, Metal Blade Records. And we'll be doing it through the lens of eight albums personally selected by Metal Blade founder Brian Slagel to represent the various eras of the label, from its humble origins in Southern California in 1982 to the global powerhouse it is today. I'm your host, Jay Bennett, and I've been writing about heavy metal for over 20 years, including for Revolver Magazine, who is partnering with Metal Blade and Vinyl Me Please for this box set. I wrote the liner notes that will accompany the physical release, and I'll be conducting the interviews you'll hear in the five episodes of this podcast. Today, we'll be speaking with Metal Blade's founder, Brian Slagle, about the origins of the label and his thoughts on each of the eight albums in the box set. And what are those albums, you might ask? Here's the rundown. We'll start out in 1985 with the L.A. Trad Metal Upstart's Omen and their second album, Warning of Danger. Then we'll head across the country to Connecticut to talk about prog metal squad, Fate's Warning, and their second album, The Spectre Within. After that, we'll jump to 1991 for two pivotal Metal Blade releases. America must be destroyed by the costumed maniacs in and Butchered at Birth, the second album from death metal masters, Cannibal Corpse. In case you haven't noticed, there's a lot of second albums in this box set and more to come. Next, we'll fast forward to 1998 and King Diamond's highly underrated Voodoo record, a spooky Louisiana-themed concept album that happens to feature a guest solo from the late, great Pantera guitarist, Dimebag Darrell. Then we'll jump ahead to 2005 to discuss Miasma, the second album from Detroit Death Dealers, The Black Dahlia Murder. Last but not least, we'll discuss Twilight of the Thunder God, the 2008 breakthrough album from Swedish death metal superstars Aman Amar, and La Rasa, the 2010 comeback record from L.A. veterans, Armored Saint. But first, let's dive right into our conversation with Brian Slagle, as he recalls what drew him to heavy metal in the first place.
1: Go back to the beginning tell me how you got into heavy metal how did you get lured over to the to the dark side as it were
2: i was into music but not really you know super into it and i really hadn't heard a lot other than you know pop stuff or whatever but i went to my cousin's house when i was 11 and he played me machine head by Deep purple and that was life-changing i was like what is this this is the most amazing thing i've ever heard so i went out the next day and bought it to, at the record store and started listening to it. Then a few days later, I was talking to my neighbor about that. He said, oh, well, if you like Deep Purple, you should check out Black Sabbath. So I listened to, I think it was Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath by Black Sabbath. And that basically hooked me in from there.
1: Yeah, I mean, how could you not be sold by Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath? I think (laughs) it's going to make it or break it for you, either you're in it or not. (laughs) Okay, so at some point, you start working at a record store, right?
2: Yeah, so obviously from, you know, getting into the scene, I, I, I got really into it. I was pretty lucky living in Los Angeles that we had a radio station there in the, in the 70s called K-West. And they would play Judas Priest, Kiss, UFO, you know, Rush, all these bands I had never heard of before. So I, I spent a lot of time at, at record stores and there was a record store, an independent record store that was, you know, a mile or so from where I lived. And so I, I spent a lot of time there. And I'd hang out, uh, one of my best friends worked there and I would hang out there all the time. I'd buy as much as I could afford to and I knew the owners and everything. And one day they fired my best friend and said, would you like to work here? And for a minute I thought, hmm, that's kind of weird. But then again, this is my dream, this is working at record store. So I was like, sure, I'm in. And that's kind of when that started. And I went to the, uh, the owner, because at that point, you know, I was super into New Asia, New Asia British Heavy Metal and all that. And I went to the owner and said, look, I know that there's a few people around L.A. that are interested in this stuff. If you give me a small budget, I'll bring some of these things in. I think you can sell it. So that kind of started, and then we started bringing in tons and tons of it. And so were you already um,
1: going to shows at this point, checking out local bands, or did that come later?
2: When I worked at the record store, I, didn't, I had zero idea that there were actually metal bands playing in, in L.A. I was only into all the European stuff, and that's all I thought existed. And one of my friends, who actually ended up being, or didn't end up, he was at the time, the guitar player for Bitch, he told me, like, hey, you know, there are, there are metal bands playing in L.A. I said, there are? It's in you know, 1981. And he said, yeah. So the first show I went to was a Wednesday night at the world-famous Troubadour. Motley Crue and Rat, for $1. And they were both pretty heavy at the time. Like, Rat started out basically as a kind of a Judas Priest-style band, and, and Motley was pretty heavy, too. So I was like, oh, wow, there are band, metal bands in L.A., who knew?
1: Wow. And you had a, a friend who had recently moved here to L.A. from Denmark, who was also into the new wave of British heavy metal. And he kind of ended up being a key figure in, in, <laughs> in not just uh, your life and metal blade, but in, in sort of heavy metal in general, really.
2: December 1980. And my friend John, he saw a kid in the parking lot of that show wearing a Saxon European T-shirt. Now, in 1980, nobody in L.A. knew who Saxon was, let alone had a European T-shirt. They started talking, so you got my friend Brian, of course, that was the infamous Lars Ulrich, and I met him a couple of days later, and the three of us became really good friends because we were the only three really in L.A. that knew anything about the scene. Uh, we became very good friends, firstly, based on that. So.
1: so, at some point between you know working at the record store, going to shows, you didn't really intend to start a record label, but that's what you ended up doing.
2: At that point, there was a whole bunch of bands in, in LA and nobody knew about them outside of LA. And this is obviously way before the internet or anything else. So it was, you know, they're basically in this little bubble that nobody knew existed. So I was very much influenced by the new wave of British heavy metal and compilations like Metal from Others and, and those ones that they came out there and were all independent. I thought, well, Maybe I could do this. So I w- went to the distributors that was ordering records from these independent distributors said, Hey, if I put together an album of local LA heavy metal bands, would you guys sell it? And they all said yes. So I went about asking all the bands if they could somehow give me a song, I could put this record together. And I had a little bit of savings. I, I borrowed some money from my aunt and-, and was able to scramble up enough money to make twenty five hundred copies of this this album that ended up being Metal Massacre. Not ever thinking that it was gonna be a label or anything. I was just doing it to, to help the scene out and then it obviously did pretty well. I made every mistake possible putting that record out. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just some dumb young kid. But one of the distributors named Green World said, so we know you don't have any money, but we think that you might know something about the music, so we'll give you a, a pressing and distribution deal, meaning that they would spend all the money to manufacture everything. I just have to find bands between the two of them. So that's really how the label started.
1: So this first Metal Masker compilation kind of ends up being instrumental here. You've got You've got Rat on there. You've got the first song officially released by Metallica. By the second compilation, Cliff Burton's pre-Metallica band, you've got Trauma. Uh, Marty Friedman's pre megadeth band, Aloha. Armored Saint, I think, is on the second one as well, which you end up, of course, having a long history with. Savage Grace is on that one, which would later figure into this box set when Kenny Powell leaves Savage Grace and forms Omen. And then, of course, the third, by the time we get to the third Metal Massacre compilation, we've got Slayer. So you've already sort of uh laid the groundwork for the entire next several decades of heavy metal here. So by by that point, by the time you're you're at Metal Masker three with Slayer, it seems like the momentum had shifted at that point. Not not only for the scene, but for you personally and, and the label.
2: Yes and no. I mean it, it took it took a long time. I mean, I did this in the back of my mom's house in this little room next to the garage. Without any air conditioning, by the way, which was really fun in Woodland Hills, California, in the summer it was 110 degrees, but I didn't care. Me by myself doing everything for, for three years, and I think you know 17 hours a day every day. And I think back and go, like, that's crazy. But we were just so into the scene and what was going on. It was so exciting at the time that you know none of us, you know me, you know doing the the, the label stuff and the bands. We just we just well, were doing it because we loved the music. Like, when you're in it, you're not really. Feel it as much, but it did seem, especially by the time Slayer came out. Obviously, the first Metallica record was out at that point. That there's something happening here. It's uh, obviously it super exciting, but you kind of felt like, okay, something's starting to happen here, and we just hope that it's going to continue on. I mean, no, never in a million years would any of us back then, yes, any of us, we'd think it would be as big as it, as it was, and we'd all still be doing this, you know, almost 40 years later. So, what was the first
1: full length record on Metal Blade?
2: bitch be my slave uh they were really really close friends of mine back then and they were kind of the really the the, the epicenter of, of that la of the, the metal scene in la because we would always every weekend we'd go to the you know the troubadour or the whiskey of the rocks whatever wherever the shows were that we'd end up at betsy bitch's mom's house afterwards because it was always 10 or 15 minutes from the strip and you know all the bands would hang out there you know metallica Armored saint the uh, Savage Grace. I mean, Everybody would kind of hang out there. So it was super fun. So I was close, close friends with them and, and they ended up being the first full-length release and also the first record I ever produced as well, which is kind of crazy.
1: And we should mention that, of course, Bitch was a female-fronted metal band. Slightly more common today, but I mean, there was really only uh, uh, in a handful of them back then in those days. I mean, worldwide, there was a handful,
2: right? Yeah, and, and it was frustrating on a, on a variety of levels because they were you know i like to push the envelope you know we got a lot of bands that push the envelope and back then for for what they were doing it was very way ahead of the game on I mean, the female fronted heavy metal band, she was very sexual on stage. They do all sort of crazy show stuff with S&M gear and all this really crazy stuff. So it wasn't just, you know, it was, it was out there. And you had the name, the word bitch was not something that you could ever utter on a radio station or anything else. Fortunately, I think, uh, and the fact that you a know, female fronted bands always, I think, facing up climb. That kind of hurt them a little bit, which is too bad because I still I, I love that band. And they're still existing today. They're still playing in LA every once in a while and stuff, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, they they definitely strike me as one of those bands that never really got their due. Speaking of bands that never got their due, let let's talk about Omen. We have an Omen record that's gonna be in this box set. The second Omen record, Warning of Danger, that's the one that we've included in this box set that you've chosen. Now, this is very much a traditional heavy metal record, but you know, I think you and I talked about this last time, it absolutely holds up today.
2: It's hard to say why stuff stands up and why you know, other things, things don't. So just a lot of it is just a matter of taste. I think for me, I like it because it's, very, it's still very traditional metal, uh, you can relate to it now, you know, bands that they were influenced by, just Priest, Iron Maiden, you know, all those bands are still around and doing extremely well. The influences are there. And even the new crop of metal bands, I think, owe a lot to a lot of these bands. I, I talked to, you know, so many young kids that were like, oh man, I, I used to love, like, like Omen for example, I used to love Omen, those early records are great. And they're finding a new audience of, of younger, of younger fans these days, which is really cool too, so. I can't tell you exactly why. I'm just happy that it is.
1: Also, in this box set, also from 1985, also a second album Fate's Warning Spectre Within. Ah! I think you had mentioned that Fate's Warning was one of the first bands on Metal Blade that was not from California.
2: That was just one of those bizarre cases where you know the label started to gain some traction. and I started getting demo tapes from outside of California. Uh, so I got, just in the mail one day, I got this tape from this band in, in Hartford, Connecticut named Fate's Warning. I put the demo tape in it's cassette, of course, put the demo tape in the cassette recorder and played it, I was like, oh my, this is incredible. I was blown away by, by just how everything, I mean, first of all, it sounded really good, which back then is not an easy thing to do. So I called up Jim Atteos, who's you know guitar player, his band, basically. I said, hey, uh, I love this. I love this. And I want to sign you guys like immediately. In fact, if you can do another two or three songs at the same studio, and if you send us the tapes, I think Bill and I can mix this and make this sound good enough to, to put out a record. And Jim was like, really? You think so? It was a, a real fun record. We all had a great time doing it. And honestly, of all my of all the Fates warning this it's my favorite.
1: Flying a band out from, you know, across the country, from Hartford, Connecticut to California to record with you. I don't know, that seems like a, the next level a, and also a next level of expense, I think, involved no, with no, that. No,
2: they didn't fly, they drove. Oh, because oh, oh,
1: they brought up. Right, right. Uh, I
2: mean, the problem is they didn't bring their equipment. Right. we didn't, you know that we didn't have any equipment to to we didn't have money to rent or anything and they obviously wanted their own equipment so they loaded up the van and uh, brought all all their equipment and drove whatever it was three four days to, to get to california yeah, it was definitely a, a whole different uh, scenario back then
1: you produced this record again and you specifically chose this one for the box set you mentioned it was your favorite but why, why what what about it do you think is makes it special makes it stand out in the fate's warning catalog
2: yeah it's interesting i think we we, we talked about this before but uh, you know, a lot of these records are second records. At Alice, it's always a, a special time for me, I think, band's second records, because the first one that comes out, and they've had a lot of time to, to make it, and, and they're you know they're learning, and, and you know being in the studio for the first time is difficult for a lot of bands. It's a whole new process that they don't know. Second records, you're a little bit more familiar with the recording process. You're also be coming together as a band, and you're getting better musicianship, better songwriting, and that's kind of what Fates, I felt, had on, on this record, where... It was, here's this band, that's really talented. They're, again, young kids, really into this stuff and and just making some pretty incredible art. To be involved in a lot of these records, it's just an honor to be having any sort of thing to to do with it, because it's just such great music.
1: Moving along here, we get into the late 80s, death metal is starting to explode. There are other labels that are around are kind of snatching up a lot of the big bands, the obituaries, the deicides. What was your kind of take on the scene as this was happening, as you were kind of seeing this manifest itself out of sort of the, the late periods of thrash, I guess.
2: Yeah, so I, I, I always liked it, but, but I have to admit, I wasn't like tremendously a, a big fan. I think those other labels, you know, like you mentioned, eureka and were signing a lot of really, really great bands. I thought were really great, but, but we just weren't in, in that wheelhouse necessarily either. So, you know, eventually we landed on the one that's now the biggest of all time.
1: Tell, tell us about your kind of introduction to Cannibal Corpse and your initial impression of them, way way back in the, I guess, late 80s, I guess they started.
2: Yeah, so so we've got a, a pretty big Buffalo connection. Mike Faley, who works at the label, uh, grew up in Buffalo. He manages Billy Sheehan, and so he's got a lot of connections there. Obviously, we'd send the Goo, Goo Dolls prior to even Cannibal Corpse, and you know, they're from Buffalo. We knew all the promoters there. So we would constantly get get stuff from Buffalo from bands that were up there. That Sure enough, you know, uh, Mike Bailey got a demo tape from Cannibal Corpse and brought it to my office and said, hey, you should listen to this. So I looked at the demo tape cassette again, and I noticed there's a song on there called Skull Full of Magnets." I looked at Mike and I said, I really don't care what this sounds like. I want to sign these guys just because they have a song called Skull Full of Magnets.'" So luckily, the demo tape was actually really good, and uh we ended up signing
1: the cannibal corpse album we have in this box set is their second album again came out in 1991 butchered at birth give me your kind of hot take on this record i mean i know it's been uh you know 30 plus years now at this point or uh 30 years exactly actually
2: yeah so that was one where you know they went into the first record again not a lot of money so the the production wasn't phenomenal but it was a really good you know, quality death metal record. I, I liked it, of course, Stone Cold Magus is on there. So, But then the second record, I was just blown away by what a huge step up these guys made. The musicianship, the, the vocals, the melodies, the whole thing was just really, even in the death metal world, to me, really interesting. Because people ask all the time, because, you know, the one problem with death metal stuff or any band that has that heavy singing is a lot of people can't get into it because, oh, just, you know, noise and, Cookie Monster vocals, blah, blah, blah. And I tried to explain to them the reason why a band like Cannibal Corpse, why they differentiate from other bands is because there's melody there. And even in the vocals, there, there are melodies there. And, and Chris Barnes really, especially in those early days, was able to have that, that crazy, you know, again, Cookie Monster style vocal, but with a lot of melody in it. That's what, I, that's what I first realized. It's like, wow, these songs are in my head now. And then, of course, the opping on the whole thing was the album hop. I remember the employees were very nervous because they had seen it before I had seen it. And they brought it in to me thinking I'd freak out. And I looked at it and go, This is brilliant. I love it. Still one of my favorite album covers of all time.
1: This album cover is like two zombie surgeons removing uh, the, the, the fetus from a dead woman's corpse. And there's other fetuses sort of hanging in the background. It's Vincent Locke is the artist. It's very gory. And this fit very much with what Cannibal Corpse were doing lyrically. I mean, death metal of course was always gory and violent but what they were doing was very much the the most extreme version of that at the time
2: Vince Vince, was this you know brilliant legendary artist and he would you know they would send him the lyrics and he would kind of come up with and this is to, still to this day he would come up with with an image that he felt made sense and yeah it was It was just such a striking cover. And again, I I love pushing the boundaries.
1: It was banned in, in Germany and a bunch of other places right away. We were talking about this last time. It's still banned in Germany today, 30 years later. Not only can they not sell the record, your office, Metal Blade office over there, can't have the record there. And they can't perform songs from this record when the band travels to Germany?
2: It's illegal to possess the record in Germany. It's illegal to sell it in Germany. And yeah, it's illegal for them to play the songs.
1: What's crazy to me is the idea of some German government official would actually have to listen to enough Cannibal Corpse to be able to determine if they were playing those songs or not. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they would have to actually be, have to become f- familiar with the catalog, which is uh, hilarious, you know?
2: Famously, there was this one woman that kind of was the, the spearhead of this stuff in, in the 90s, and she was the one that really brought it to the, to the German government. And she was hardcore about, about all this sort of stuff. So it is interesting they had to be familiar enough with the catalog to figure that out, but uh, that's crazy.
1: So we're, so we're staying in 1991 here, and we're going to talk about GWAR. America Must Be Destroyed, which in this case is their third album, but their second for Metal Blade. Now, Guar released their, their first album, their debut, Hell Oh, on uh, a little New York label called Shimmy Disc. Uh, and then they ended up with you, Metal Blade, for Scum Dogs of the Universe. So tell me about how, how were you first exposed to Guar and become, uh, become aware of them before you, so you sign them.
2: So there, uh, I think it still exists actually, but there's a convention uh, called CMJ, which is the College Music Journal, which is all the college radio stations at this big convention in New York every year. And I would always go, you know, see, just hang out with people, be on a panel, whatever. So one year, the year before we ended up signing, I can't remember what year it was, but I was there and a bunch of people kept telling me about this band. So you got kind of to see them, they go and they throw blood and meat in the audience and it's crazy and they wear costumes. I'm like, oh, this is right up my alley. So I watched the show, and I told my friends, if these guys are even remotely sane, I've got to work with them because they're just so phenomenal. And I went backstage and met them, and they're all you know, college students from Virginia, really smart and artistic and, and really great people. And so we ended up signing them, and still working with them today. Yeah.
1: So the third record, America Must Be Destroyed. This album is kind of a, well, not kind of, it is, it's a reaction to a famous incident that happened with the, the, the band leader, Odorous Yerungus, uh, Dave Rocky, rest in peace. He was arrested. The band was on tour down south. What's going on? On, take it from there. What, what, what happened and, and what was your sort of reaction to this uh, arrest?
2: well you know, again this is early you know no internet no and that stuff so it took it, it took a little while for us to to find out but one of their one of the managers called us and said you know dave's been arrested I'm like what for what and they said for indecent in exposure I mean, what did he do they were playing the show and so they arrested him and everybody really knew yeah, i think even that the cops were kind of like this is dumb but we somebody there complained and you know, they ended up arresting him, and, and you know, we, we were able to get him out. Obviously, you know, he got he got acquitted because I was I wasn't there. I, I wish I was there. I don't know if there any footage of it, but the actual court session, you know, because they were they were complaining that he had he was showing his penis. It's like, well, he he wasn't. He was showing it's part of the costume. It's, it's the cuttlefish of Cthulhu, and uh, they referred to that whole time. So it was pretty funny, but it was also a little scary at the same time because it's like, wait a minute. They arrest people for stuff like that for you know free speech and I mean they're you know they're doing crazy stuff but it's all it's fake it's like arresting somebody making a horror movie or something I never never really under, understood that they were they're banned from North Carolina for a long period of time and you know if they're not anymore but that was it was definitely a, a bit jarring an artist arrested for for basically making art
1: yeah I mean for listeners we should mention that the, the cuttlefish of Cthulhu is uh, the name for a prosthetic penis. That Dave Brockie, aka Odorus Jurongus, would wear kind of dangling between his legs. It was not real. So the idea that you could be like prosecuted for indecent exposure and it's not—he wasn't showing any part of his anatomy. It was a, it was completely
2: fake. And it literally looks like a, a, an alien fish of some form, so
1: preposterous. This record kind of ends up being monumental in so many ways. And then there was a a footnote to this album, uh, America Must Be Destroyed, is that there was a a long form video released, A Phallus in Wonderland, that was kind of a continuation of the America Must Be Destroyed story that was uh, nominated for a a Grammy.
2: Yeah, Guar has been nominated for two Grammys over the (laughs) years. May, and both for the for, for long form video. So yeah, that was that I was really out of the blue too, because you know, we had never been nominated for a Grammy and I was on the Grammy board, uh, off and on on the metal board trying to make sure that you know, Jethro Tull didn't win over Metallica again. But you know, that being said, didn't didn't really have any influence over anything. And I was just on the the, the metal panel. So I wasn't on the long form music panel. And sure enough we, we got word that they were nominated. But we're all kind of in shock but they were, and it ended up being great because they, they went to the Grammys and they did the red carpet and everything in full costume. So everybody's like freaking out and they ended up being on you know the Today Show and CNN and all this stuff. And I'll never forget, because this is when the Grammys were very suit and tie, very buttoned up. It was in the Shrine Auditorium. It was a very small venue. And it was uh, kind of a, a, a huge thing. They were trying to walk to walk in. And, you know, normally, I guess it's black tie only. They, if you've got a t-shirt on, they wouldn't let you in. And I remember being there while they're trying to get in the woman who's taking the, the tickets and <clears throat> the guy's like, are you going to let them in like that? She's like, they got tickets. I'm letting them in. So
1: <laughs> and what, what a great vindication for a, like an album cycle that started with, you know, that was basically came, came out of a totally chicken shit arrest. Well, we're in the nineties here and this is at some point during the nineties, early nineties, you managed to reassemble one of the great metal bands of all time, merciful fate. You get them back together they do a string of excellent uh, records with uh, with Metal Blade. Uh, some some of their first in like almost ten years, I think. And then King Diamond calls you up and says he wants to start doing some King Diamond band records. <laughs> One of those records is included in this box set. it's the voodoo voodoo album. Why does this album stand out to you in the in the King Diamond catalog?
2: I think it's important that people understand that, that you know the nineties were a weird time of metal, and I get it that you know there's a lot of weird things going on, but there's so many records that came out there that didn't really get their due. And I really think the merciful fate and King Diamond stuff. Both those bands put out in the '90s is really, really underappreciated. It's getting better now. I, I see more and more people getting into it. They're such good records, but they just came out at a time where mainstream metal—metal main, metal wasn't mainstream. It was like super underground. But the Voodoo record, I think, for for the second wave of, of the King Diamond stuff, was definitely my favorite. I, I love the songs on there. I think the production is really good. Uh, they still play some of that stuff live, which makes me very happy because I, I really love that record. And also, I, I, in hindsight, it's uh, it, it's a special record to to, to King and, and the band and myself, too, because our good friend Dime Daryl played lead on the song Voodoo, which was, I mean, it, Dime was a massive King Diamond fan. Of course, they both lived in Dallas, so it wasn't that hard to lure him into the studio to do something. It's a phenomenal solo, too, to, to have him be, uh, be on that record. And contributing is, is also something really cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, Dimey Daryl, of course, of Pantera. His legacy is is here, not only the Pantera catalog, but with this King Diamond record, which, like, like almost all King Diamond records, is a concept album.
2: And the one thing that I love about King and the concepts, too, is that you really, I mean, I, I love talking to him about each album concept because he, he will go... I, literally, sometimes I think I, he's talked for three hours about the concept of what of what particular record's coming up or what came out, which is great, because it's you get the whole stories. You really get that feeling with the lyrics and that you're kind of there. And, and I, I love stuff like that. When you we paint that sort of picture and, and you can really feel like you're there. All
1: right, so from 1998, we're gonna jump ahead to 2005. The record we're gonna talk about comes out in 2005, but The Black Dahlia Murder, they come out of Detroit in the early 2000s. They released this four-song EP on a tiny little label outside of Olympia. Is that is that how you first heard them, or did you hear one of the early demos, or how were you exposed to them?
2: So it's it's weird because because Brian from the band and I argue a little bit about this, but I, I'm pretty clear. I found them on MySpace. Huh? Because when you go to MySpace. And they would have a band on there. You could see what what other bands are like or you know, recommend other bands. So I forget what band site I was on. I might have even been on Earth or somebody like that, Red Court. And I saw I just see this name the Black Dolly Murder. I'm like, that's really interesting name. I'm gonna go there. So on their page. They had a couple songs on there, thought they were amazing. And I actually contacted them via MySpace and said, Hey, you know, Brian Segel from Metal Blade, it'd be interesting talking to you guys if you're interested. And immediately he got back to me. And we ended up doing the deal that way. Kind of funny side note, well, not funny for them, but funny side note is I've become really good friends with the guys from Tip, which is really, by the way, great, cool, underground label. I highly recommend you check it out. One night, uh, Jason, the main guy, told me, said, yeah, you know, we were literally going to sign block. They were going to sign a contract with us one day prior to you getting a hold of them. And as soon as you got a hold of them, the whole thing went went away and i felt really bad i'm like oh uh, i'm sorry He's
1: like, that's yeah, fine, fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's great so the black dahlia murder album including this box set is miasma which is their second record again uh and it's all and it's also their their breakthrough record because i remember uh, on the, the record that came out after that which i think was nocturnal they, they were on the cover of decibel i did that cover story obviously miasma is the one that got them there
2: well, it's interesting because they, they kind of, you know, they kind of came out of that, that you know, hardcore metalcore scene, which they weren't really a metalcore band. Uh, right. They played with all of them. But when you listen to the music, it, it's a whole, it's, it's much heavier. And I, I love the first record. The, the first record is one of my all-time favorite Black Dolly records. And I think it's one of the best debut records in the metal genre in a long time, too. I, I just love that record. The one thing I love, when working with all these bands, especially when we've been around a long time, when you feel that something special is when they make one really good record and they followed up with another one that's actually better, and you can see the progression of the, the band, the musician, trip, the production, you know, all the stuff we talked about before with some of the other bands, and I, I felt that this record was was had that. It was a real like okay, this second you know the miasma comes out. I go okay, this these guys are definitely stepping up big time.
1: All right, so now we're going to fast forward again three more years, I believe, two thousand eight. This box that has Twilight of the Thunder God gone on to be, become one of the biggest records from Aman Marth, the great Swedish death metal band. <laughs>
2: They've been working with Metal
1: Blade from the beginning. You've been working with them since the late '90s when they started. What, uh, what kind of, what drew you to them, and how did you find them, and end up releasing their debut? Yes.
2: Yeah, so uh, we have a company, we have a company in Germany, and obviously people there and an office there. So I was there. I would be there quite, quite often. And so I went in one day and uh, the great Martin Purr, who used to work for us and now has his own label called the Cyclone Empire, more, more cool little labels you can check out said, Hey, I got this demo tape from this band of model Mars. And I think it's really good and you should listen to it. So, okay. So I listened to it and thought it was great. I said, well, this is awesome. We should, we should go after them. So contacted them. Uh, luckily they were big fans of the label. So uh, kind of helped out that and uh, and we ended up signing them. And then, in addition to that, uh, Michael Trenger, who ran our, our office for for many many years, sadly passed away from a, a brain hemorrhage about gosh, six seven years ago. But he ended up being an integral part of, our, of our, Armada Omar Mars' career. He was basically the sixth member. Uh, provided them, you know, advice on touring. You know, to set up their merchandising company. But that's where we, we found them. And it was interesting because they were just they were just some you know melodic Swedish death metal band, which I thought were great and they were kind of putting out these, you know, very good death metal records. And then all of a sudden, Fate of Norns comes, and, but this is the turn to like, whoa, 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 this is really, really good. And then Twilight just kind of perfected that sound, I think, for them.
1: All right, we're gonna fast forward a couple more years here, and we're gonna talk about Armored Saint and the La Rasa album. First, I mean, Armored Saint just generally, this is a band you have a long, long history with. You put them on a, one of the early uh, Metal Massacre compilations. You released their debut AP, uh, EP in 1983. So then they, they jump to Chrysalis Records, do three records, and then they return to Metal Blade in 88 for a live album and then the symbol of Salvation album. So this whole thing where you, you sign them early on, put out the EP, and then they left, did that create an awkward scenario or were you, did you encourage them to do that?
2: No, no, no! That was actually one of the best things that ever happened to, to us. And I don't know quite honestly. I mean, look, it was—we were just a tiny little label. We, we couldn't, you know, the majors start calling bands, I and mean, we can't—we can't provide anything that they can provide. So, I was always happy when the bands would get signed to the label. Until eventually, when most of those bands didn't do what we thought they were going to do, and the labels changed, and you know, most of most of them ended up coming back. But, but that was a really big thing for us because. You know, it was like a third album and it was still me by myself running the company. And they would, in every interview they did, they would mention, yeah, we came from Metal Blade and, and that's, you know, we were getting national attention and, you know, huge publications and magazines we've never had any of that stuff before. So the image and the visibility of the label, like, was huge. So that was a, a really integral part of, of the ascension, I guess, of, of Metal Blade as a label. So I, I loved that they did that. And then
1: the, the La Rasa album, which comes out in 2010, this is a comeback record, really. I mean, they, Armored Saint hasn't put out a record in a decade at this point. Uh, a lot of those years, they've been on hiatus, like not getting together, making music at all. Kind of, yeah, set, set the scene a little bit for this this record and, and how it it why you chose it for this box set.
2: Obviously, you know, we, we did the Symbol Salvation album. It was kind of a big comeback. It was an important record, you know, one of the most, most important records that I think we've done at Metal Blade. And it did very well, but it, it didn't do what we all expected it to do. It just came out at the wrong time. I, I firmly believe that that record came out in 1988. It would have been a gold record. But in 1981, everything's changing. And grunge is coming in. And it just wasn't, wasn't the right time. And then John left and, and was in Anthrax for a while. And I think that he, more than anybody else, he was just kind of disillusioned by the music industry at, at, at one point. And, you know, he's married he having kids. He's got a, he had a really great job. He was, you know, doing voiceover work and they were, they were doing casting stuff. So he, he was in a really good spot. So he didn't really need to to make music or go out on tour. He was kind of like, I did that for a long time. I was kind of bummed out and burnt out on it. I think the other guys were kind of a, a bit of the, of the same way, but I was, all i still see them. They're still remain friends. And I'd always kind of put it, put it in their ear. Like, Hey, if you ever want to do another record, I'd love to do it. So after long enough time to barely be banging on their heads enough or something got them to uh to decide to start start doing demos and, and writing stuff and then they came to me and said okay we, we've been writing some things and we think we might want to do it what do you think i said you well, know i'm in a thousand percent and you know heard a couple of the songs and i thought they were really good and i put this record in there too because it's another one i wanted to try to highlight records that i didn't think were i mean I, obviously Twilight *Thunder God* is kind of a no-brainer but the other ones highlight records that from band from some of the bands that we know, that maybe aren't their biggest records, but are really, really good records that just somehow got overlooked. I think La Raz is kind of that way, just because you know it was a—I don't want to say it was a weird time, but it was just you know they couldn't really tour; it was kind of a side project thing for them. So it did well, but it wasn't really until the last couple of records that they're kind of back big time. And I think this is a really good record that, that I think if people. Got even gotten into Armored Saint recently in the last couple of records, which are two of the biggest records they've ever done. Crazy enough, uh, this is a good record to go back to and listen to because it's, it's really good stuff.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's. I think it's worth mentioning with Armored Saint that uh, unlike a lot of the bands that started out in that kind of heyday early '80s, the LA bands especially. They've maintained a pretty. I mean, they've been a consistent band. I mean, there's been some changes to the sound, but nothing to the extent that we've seen with some of the other bands from that era. I mean, they've been, I mean, a, you know, a crowd pleaser for lack of a better term.
2: You know, I agree. Pretty sure it was this record where Joey Vera, the bass player, who's also a producer, writes a lot of stuff. said, yeah, we're going to go in a bluesier direction. I went, okay, so I don't know what that means. I mean, I, I love the blues. I know what that means, but you know, it didn't really change a lot. I can see where the the. You know kind of the patterns and the rhythms are a little bit bluesier, but it's still classic heavy metal stuff. I like bands that that kind of stay that way, I guess. You know, I mean Slayer, A C D C, you know, on and on bands that, that that just do what they do and do it really well at a high level. I, and I kinda of like that. I get it as an artist, you know, you've got to switch it up. You've got to do different things sometimes, but I always kind of come back to bands if you you know if you if you're doing something really good and you're really good at doing it, then just Keep doing that
1: great man i think I think we uh I think we got them all thank you again for doing that I know that was uh you know 50 to 60 percent similar to an interview we just did like a month ago
2: no it's cool i mean I, I like this i like what we're doing in this whole project and it's like i said it's kind of highlighting a lot of records that maybe aren't as highlighted as they should be so it's fun for me to do that talk about stuff and hopefully turn some people on to it
0: In our next episode, it's all about 1985. We'll talk with Omen founder and guitarist Kenny Powell about the origins of the band and get the story behind their second album, Warning of Danger. We'll also speak with former Fate's Warning vocalist John Arch about the writing and recording of their second album, The Spectre Within. Till then, I'm your host, Jay Bennett, and this is the History of Metal Blade podcast from Vinyl Me Please and Revolver Magazine.